This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos. Once again, this is Brock, here with another review of Ian Fleming's James Bond books. This episode, I am back reviewing a novel, not a short story, You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice is the third novel in what many refer to as the Blofeld Trilogy, along with Thunderball and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. You Only Live Twice is the 11th Bond novel, and in fact, is the last book released in Fleming's lifetime. By the time this book was released in March of 1964, Fleming's health had deteriorated considerably, the lawsuit over the rights of Thunderball reportedly having a lot to do with that. After his death, there would be two more releases, a novel and a collection of short stories. And as I was reading this book, I got the distinct impression that Fleming's heart wasn't into writing another James Bond adventure, as the majority of the book isn't a James Bond adventure like Thunderball or a deep character study adventure like On Her Majesty's Secret Service. You Only Live Twice is lacking some fundamental elements that made those other two books much more involving, memorable, and successful. The book opens with another trademark Fleming flashback. We start with Bond already in Japan, drinking sake, with Tiger Tanaka, head of the Japanese Secret Service, involved in a serious game of rock, paper, scissors. (laughs) They call it out as a kid's game, but both are playing to win. I do like that we open the book with Bond already midway through a mission, instead of how many of the other stories I have read and reviewed here for Books and Nachos. He is in between assignments, complaining about being bored. The next chapter is where we get the flashback, and from there we get some of the only strong character work in the entire novel. M is concerned about Bond and talks with a staff neurologist named Maloney about how Bond's work has suffered and how he has almost become a security risk. The neurologist tells M, again, apparently that Bond is in shock because of losing Tracy eight months prior. And here the neurologist points out that Bond may have fallen in love with Tracy partly because she was a bird with a broken wing much as I've noticed in that novel as well. So Maloney suggests that Bond get one more chance, that she put him on an assignment that he isn't recovering a vital piece of spy equipment or anything like that, but an assignment that is important but practically a lost cause. Let the man have time to heal and return to form. Because Bond, at the beginning of this book, is in bad shape. He is a shattered man, full of booze and depression, not what we're used to for James Bond, but given the circumstances, what is needed for the character right now, given the continuity. Fleming's writing here of M and Bond and the reactions to Goodnight, which is Bond assistant, and Moneypenny to Bond's behavior, also add to these scenes. I get a strong sense of this world from the prose here, and especially since I have read some of the other books, the familiarity of these characters is also helping sell these situations, characterizations, and reactions of the characters to one another. Bond feels guilty about letting down MI6 when M doesn't greet him with a number or his name, just a sit-down with no mission dossier anywhere to be seen. And we get another great character scene right here with Bond offering to resign and then insists he should when M tells him he'll be taking Bond out of the 00 section. M gets furious because he's trying to promote Bond to give him this mission because he does care about Bond and is taking Maloney's advice. 
Bond is being promoted to go to Japan for this impossible mission. Reading these first two chapters, I had a high hopes for the rest of this book, and I got the impression we we're going to read a story of a broken man picking up the pieces of his life and trying to forget the promise of the new life he was prepared to start, but was so suddenly ripped away from him just as it started to begin. The mission M sends Bond on is to get Tiger Tanaka to share the latest information they have on the Soviet Union that they obtained by breaking Soviet codes with a device they call the Magic 44. The CIA isn't being forthcoming with any information they may be getting from Tiger, if any at all, and Japan doesn't see Britain in their league anymore as a world informational power, so it won't share the intel with Britain. So it seems as a practically impossible mission for Bond to accomplish this, but if Bond can succeed, he will double MI6's intelligence on the Soviet Union and put them in a much stronger spot in the world. Bond goes to Japan, and his contact there is an Australian named Dicko Henderson, a fun Falstaff sort of character, who when we first meet him, we get an enjoyable read about how he has Tiger all figured out, from picking out his men in a crowd, to the car tails, to all his wiretaps. Dicko and Tiger are frenemies, and once Bond is there for a month or so, the three of them became drinking pals and inseparable. But after that time, Bond is no closer to accomplishing his mission, and around this time, Dicko disappears from the novel, because it becomes about Bond and Tiger getting together, and that's a shame. Dicko was a two-dimensional character to be sure, but a colorful one at that. Tiger finds out through his friendship with Bond what Bond is prepared to trade, yet Tiger already has that information, so Tiger proposes a different deal. And here's where the book goes off the rails for a while. Bond is told by Tiger of the Death Collector, an intelligent, non-Japanese resident who was a terrible man and a stain on the country. Dr. Shutterhand is his name, with his wife Frau Emmy Shutterhand, and they've been granted residence as they promise a rare botany center for the island, importing in rare species and offering to staff the entire place with residents. Dr. Shutterhand recruited a staff of almost all former Black Dragons, a secret society of trained killers. This doctor from Switzerland made his garden of death full of poison plants and waters full of poison fish. The grounds have snakes, spiders, scorpions, and piranhas. The man wears samurai armor to protect himself from all these dangers, and his garden facilities encourage suicide for those who want it. And in the past six months, 600 deaths have occurred. Tiger sends his own man in to get rid of this doctor, but to no avail. And now he wants to send Bond in to kill the doctor and his wife. And if Bond succeeds, that will prove to him and the Japanese that Britain is worthy of the information gathered from their spy networks from the Magic 44, and they will be granted access to all that information. So Bond agrees to the deal. What other choices he have? And when looking at the photographs of the doctor and his wife, he sees through their disguises and sees that the doctor is none other than Blofeld and his wife, Irma Bunt. So that's the basic plot description. And as you can hear, it seems like a fairly straightforward premise. The problem of one man turns out to be the same problem as the other man, and everybody wins. But as that story is fairly straightforward, and the mission detail is pretty thin, since they know where the guy is, and the mission is to kill this guy, all they have to do is plan to get around the castles and gardens' defenses. As Bond points out, he'll stick out like a sore thumb, being Caucasian, trying to break into this Japanese castle. So they attempt to turn Bond Japanese similar as they do in the movie. They tint Bond's skin, cut his hair and his eyebrows, and Tiger teaches him as much as possible for Bond to make as few mistakes as possible. And this teaching process, which really is about Tiger lecturing Bond about the ways of Japan, takes up more than half 
the book. These scenes aren't about Bond getting trained in the ways of the ninja or trained in actual customs of the country. This core section of the book is Tiger talking a lot about it, going into great details that aren't necessary. I felt like I was reading a Michael Crichton book where he was showing off all the research that he's done. For example, at the start of this description part, when talking about the Garden of Death, Tiger describes the various types of poisons falling into six general categories over two and a half pages. Two and a half pages describing various poisons. Now, my copy of the book is small print, small spacing on the pages, so it is likely a normal-sized text version of this book. The poison list could go on longer than two and a half pages. It's interesting without a doubt, but I definitely say TMI. Now, I was giving the novel the benefit of the doubt, thinking that when Bond infiltrates the fortress later in the book, he'll have to go all through the dangers that he's being warned about through this garden of death. And having all this information up front, we will better understand what he's up against. But as it turns out, we don't get that scene of Bond outsmarting the garden dangers. He is able to get inside the castle fairly easily and completely toxin-free. I soon figured out that all this incredible description of poisons, the acceptance of suicide in the Japanese culture, women's place in Japanese culture, what a ninja is, and their abilities and weapons, of the kamikaze and the honor of being part of that elite group, was just about teaching the reader about a culture probably most of them didn't know much or anything about at the time of this novel's release. But there is so much of this in this James Bond book, and not enough James Bond, not the character work we got in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and so far, not any of the action we got in that book or in Thunderball, with no actual villains doing villainous things at all. And I quickly became frustrated with this long stretch of the book. All this talk about the traditions of Japan and the differences between Japanese culture and the Western world are taking the place of character development on both sides. Tiger is just a data dump of information, and we aren't getting any character study on or any further acknowledgement of Bond's breakdown. I was especially hoping for more of a portrait of a broken man. And while at the beginning of the novel we are told that he is irrevocably changed by the events of the last book, and we get a little bit of that broken James Bond, once we get to Japan, we get none of that. Once Bond knows it's Blofeld he is after here, that killing him will accomplish his mission and the personal vendetta, we don't even get a revenge-filled Bond. The book tries to tell us that Bond's trip to Japan, his time with Diko and Tiger, help him progress and get through all this stuff, but I don't completely buy that. I don't see that. By the time Bond infiltrates Bolfeld's fortress. He is supposedly centered in a much better place mentally, taking in all the Japanese culture. But as written, I didn't get the powerful journey that Bond takes with Tiger on this Japanese journey. All I see is Tiger telling him about it, and I'm left unsatisfied. The character here is nowhere as interesting as in the last book, and they had a real opportunity to show us how he made that progress, showing us layers and nuance. But instead, we're just told that it has influenced him. Things slightly pick up when we get to the island with Blofeld's castle. Tiger sets up Bond to live and work with Kissy Suzuki, a former Hollywood actress who came back home to Japan and is now a local fisherman. Kissy's trained bird is called David, after David Niven. Kissy tells Bond that David Niven was the only actor in Hollywood who treated her kindly when she was out there doing her roles. David Niven was the actor who Fleming thought could play Bond, actually. It's kind of a fun fact. Neither here or there, just thought I'd mention it because I enjoyed that in the book. Bond was asked to take Kissy's father's place in the boat to help catch a wahi fish on their fishing boat. The bird helps with that, too. And during this time, Kissy falls for Bond while they're working together. Bond hasn't told her his real name, and finally, 
asks her about the castle on the island. When describing Bond looking at Kissy, we get a lot of references to her breasts and behind, sexualizing her. While I'm not against that sort of thing, these things uh, stick out <clears throat> in the prose because it is like Fleming had nothing left to say about this woman. Again, none of these characters have a great deal of character depth, and Kissy needs something. We need to understand why she is falling in love with Bond, and in the place of character development, we just get her sexualized. Fleming does write Kissy as a stronger-willed woman rather than just a subservient one. Kissy does figure out what Bond is ultimately there for on the island, and she asks Bond to tell her what he can of the mission, and once Bond confirms her suspicions, Kissy insists on coming with him to the castle as a guide. And that's going to be helpful because later on, Kissy does save Bond from certain death. Finally, we get to Bond's ascent into the castle grounds, and getting into the castle in his ninja suit was good descriptive prose. It was fun to read, and what I've been waiting for this whole novel. Coming in with less than 40 pages to go in my version of the text, while not nail-biting action, Fleming has a knack for painting that vivid picture of Bond's actions, as we the reader are right along with him, either on the side of a cliff face, or breaking into the castle to the lower level escape door, of him witnessing a suicide in the garden, a guy poisoned and eaten by piranhas. Bond successfully gets into the castle, but falls through the floor that's booby-trapped, and loses any advantage he had. Bond's disguise doesn't fool Blofeld or his henchmen, because of his hands are not the hands of a fisherman, and of course his height. Irma Bunt sees the scar on Bond's face and realizes exactly who he is, and Blofeld sends him to the mud pits, which sets up a great scene. Bond's cover, if he was caught, is that he's supposed to be a deaf mute. So once Bunt identifies him, Blofeld puts him in a room where hot mud bubbles out of holes in the ground, and Bond is put up on a wooden bench kind of thing with a hole in the middle of it. And basically, Bond will get burned alive if he stays there. Bond sees what will happen to him if he doesn't confess that he is an imposter. And Blofeld knows that Bond can actually hear him, and he taunts him to tell him the truth or die in this unceremonious death. So Bond buys himself some time by speaking up, and Blofeld pulls him back into the office for interrogation. Again, incredible reading at this point, and only 20 pages left in the book. Now it gets really interesting. Bond and Blofeld have a stubborn man conversation, trying to outdo each other by getting inside each other's heads. Blofeld's is a variation of, if Bond comes clean, he'll kill him quickly. It's one of my favorite lines from Lethal Weapon, and the perfect thing for Blofeld to say at this point. Uh, growing tired from this back and forth, already figuring out why Bond is here, that Tiger is using Bond to solve his problem because his own agent failed, Blofeld decides to kill Bond himself with his bare hands and proposes a duel. What's fun here is the back and forth between Bond and Blofeld. Blofeld calls Bond a blunt instrument, much like we hear in the Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig movies. And his job, described by Blofeld as, he's just a tool being used by others for their needs. Again, things that keep coming up in the more recent movies. Nice characterization of Bond here and trying to get in his head psychologically before he defeats him physically. Blofeld is described as 6'3", powerful build, good size for Bond to go up against. But right before the duel starts, Blofeld monologues on how his plans are cruel to be kind to the world. To bring about much-needed change in the world, he needs to purge it of its problems. Neat point-of-view stuff. He's mad as a hatter, but always fun to read this villain's mindset. So Blofeld asks if Bond wants to kneel and offer his neck, or wants to fight it out, and Bond takes action. 
Bond takes Bunt out first and grabs a wooden staff to fight Blofeld with his samurai sword. They do battle, cutting each other, and finally as Bond's weapon is destroyed, Bond lunges at Blofeld and chokes him to death with his bare hands, at one point yelling out, Die, Blofeld, die! As And the fight was over as quickly as it began. There was no over-ceremonious praise, no internal monologue of how his years in the making mission was complete, how Tracy can rest better tonight, none of that. He just goes on to try to escape the castle alive. Has a lot of ring of reality to it, but it is anticlimactic in the grand sense. Here is the man getting what he's wanted for the past two books, and driven by the actions at the very end of the last book, you'd think he'd say something to acknowledge it, but no. To escape the castle, Bond uses a giant balloon, and during the escape, Bond is shot and grazed in the side of the head and falls into the sea with a major head injury. Kissy sees Bond fall into the water, swims as fast as she can to get him. He's alive, but he lost his memory. Doesn't remember who he is, who Kissy was. And here we get a surprise. Kissy capitalizes on all this and tells him that they live together on this island, that he is her lover, and they fish together and have a lovely life together. She is giving him the cover story that Bond gave her just to keep him there with her forever. She is going to keep his past away from Bond as long as possible. She was happy with Bond fishing with her on that boat, and she wants to keep him safe from harm. She has her father and the village keep this secret with her. This twist is a great read, completely unexpected and appropriate. As Bond, a broken man at the beginning of this book, from being denied the happiness he was hoping for with Tracy, is now going to have the opportunity to have that sort of happiness, that sort of life, now here. Of course, not as James Bond, under a different identity, unaware of who he really is, but an opportunity to have that life nonetheless. Yet, strangely, where Fleming could have ended the book there, we read months have gone by and learn that Kissy and Bond haven't had sex since the accident. So she goes to a local sex shop and gets toad's sweat and lizard powder, mixes it together, drugs Bond's food with them, and with the aid of a Kama Sutra-type book she obtains there and leaves out for Bond to discover, they finally do it. Then another month or two goes by, and she's debating whether or not to tell Bond she is pregnant and that they should probably marry as a result. And just as she's thinking these things, Bond finds a scrap of paper with the word Vladistock. He is haunted by dreams of cities and faces of white men he had never met before, doesn't understand where they're coming from. And because of this word, he feels he must travel to Russia to figure out what it may mean to him and if it's associated with his haunting dreams. This chapter has some incredible plot points. A Bond baby, he's finally coming out of his amnesia, but it's still a strange coda to a book that probably should have been over already. One fun thing in the book that came before we find out Bond survived from the castle, because Bond is missing, presumed dead, we get a chapter of Bond's obituary. And in this obituary, we get the names of his parents and the information that he was 11 years old when they died in a climbing accident that was mentioned in the movie Goldeneye. We learn his father was a foreign rep for Vickers Armaments, and he was raised by his aunt at a place called Pet Bottom. In addition to all that in the obituary, Fleming pokes fun at himself, which I found quite amusing. Fleming says that books were written about Commander Bond's adventures by a friend of his, and, quote, If the quality of these books had been any higher, the author would certainly have been prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. (laughs) I find that quite amusing, Mr. Fleming. Good for you. Admittedly, the novel You Only Live Twice does end somewhat strongly, with a confrontation with Blofeld and the surprising ending. But looking at the book as a whole, there's a sense of filler here that I cannot shake. A story and plot 
that is not properly told, but more like a travelogue and comparison of cultures and of a society Westerners will most definitely find intriguing at the time this book was released. Though brought up during that portion of the book, the theme of rebirth, especially Bond's recovery as a person, gets lost in that large chunk of description of the cultures. Once again, like in many of the Bond short stories I have read, I am not getting a bona fide Bond story, but a book that has Bond in it. And that seems off, considering what happened last book and where this very book concludes. Overall, I was unsatisfied reading You Only Live Twice, and I cannot recommend you do the same. But if you're so inclined to finish off the trilogy, I suggest you read the beginning of the book, and then the book is split into part one, part two. I suggest you, you can pick it up probably at part two and not have missed a thing. That concludes my review of You Only Live Twice. Please come back to Books and Nachos next week to hear another review of the Ian Fleming James Bond catalog. We only have a couple of more episodes left here, so please, if you haven't done so already, please join us in the forums over at SWActionNews.com and give us your thoughts on this novel and any others we have read so far. Once again, this is Brock. Thank you for listening. Books and Nachos will return. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.